It's the Chris Grace Show. I'm your host, Chris Grace. I am very excited to bring you this interview today because uh, uh, normally I have Eric, my husband, edit these interviews. And something really funny happened with this interview, which is that he cut out almost nothing from this interview. And he actually told me that he thought it was one of the best ones that I had done so far and one of the most informative interviews that I have done. So I'm very excited for you to hear it. Uh, it's with Tiffany Little Canfield. We talk a lot about casting. We talk a lot about the business and uh, I'm very excited for you to hear it. So you'll be hearing it in just a second. Uh, I did want to catch you up a little bit. I am in the middle of my Hollywood Fringe run right now. Um, if you're hearing this when this episode is released, I have two more performances Friday uh, this Friday and Saturday, Friday at, I believe, 8 p.m. Uh, and Saturday at 4.45 p.m., finishing up the Fringe. Almost the whole run has been sold out. The show is going really well. This is my Chris Grace as Scarlett Johansson uh, show. Normally, I push all this personal stuff to the end, uh, but I'm going to just give you a little catch-up since it's been a couple weeks since my last episode. Um, still prepping for Edinburgh Fringe. I have launched a Kickstarter. In case you didn't know, you've probably been spammed about it, but if you want to help contribute to support the show, please go to chrisgrace.com slash scarlet S-C-A-R-L-E-T-T um, Almost fully funded for my budget for Edinburgh Fringe and I'm going to keep pushing to just get as much as I can because um, one thing that I've learned over the years, but specifically this year as I was hiring my print advertising for August uh, marketing is essentially a bottomless pit that you can throw an unlimited amount of money into and marketing is also this weird thing where because it's essentially impression marketing where you're trying to get people to know about your show and it often requires more than just them seeing the poster once or more than them seeing one press release it's almost like uh five impressions five posters five flyers five people telling them about the show is almost exponentially better than four in a way uh having one poster up in the city of edinburgh during the august fringe is almost useless because of the sea of marketing that people are getting hit with however the flip side of that is that it's impossible to measure it is not quantifiable how effective your marketing is so this is just all to say that uh if you have any extra dollars <laughs> feel free to go to chrisgrace.com slash scarlet uh and and throw some my way you know um i've really put off a lot of my plans to like monetize this podcast and so uh feel free to take all of the single dollars that you've saved from not having to do a patreon for this podcast and throw my way in the kickstarter um and then in the fall, I'll start a Patreon after Fringe. I actually probably am going to do that because I want to eventually probably separate some of my interviews from some of the more personal updates that I give in this podcast. And I think actually I've seen this work with other podcasts where it actually works a little bit to have a little tiny bit of a paywall between the public and the more revealing slash intimate uh, podcasts. Um, you know, not that I'm going to be revealing any giant secrets or anything, but if I want talk about the process of putting up the show in Edinburgh and how it's going. And if I really want to be honest about successes and failures, I might not necessarily want those 
to be just free to the public for anyone to hear, even if it's just paying $1 to hear them. That would be great. Anyway, that's not to come until uh, October, probably at the earliest. Uh, in the meantime, I've got some great uh, interviews lined up, some really interesting subjects. Um, but today, specifically, for those of you that are in show business, I think you'll find this interview really fascinating with Tiffany Little Canfield. So without any further ado, let's get to the interview. My guest this week is Tiffany Little Canfield. Uh, I have known Tiffany for quite some time now, uh, but we should have known each other a lot sooner because we both went to the, well, what we would call the North Carolina School of the Arts, which is now called the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. Uh, but Tiffany is a casting director. She has worked for Telsey. Uh, for the entirety of her career and is best known for casting such small little mom and pop hits like uh, This Is Us or The Greatest Showman or Little Mermaid, you know, little indie projects that you probably haven't heard of. <laughs> uh, but like Tiffany's re resume is incredible. I'm so happy to have her on the show. Tiffany, welcome to the Chris Gray Show. Hi, Chris. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, yeah, actually, I believe we met when I was auditioning for This Is Us. I think so. Um, when, uh, and, and, uh, I have often told a funny story about This Is Us, uh, that when I read the script for it, I, and this is, I was in the pilot briefly, and, uh, I did not understand what that show was about. Um, and I thought that it was a comedy because the scene that I was in was with Chris Sullivan. Um, and it was like, he was very funny, like when we shot the scene. Um, and he is a very funny performer. And so I didn't get a sense of the bigger context. And then my husband then saw when the pilot came out and he was like crying at the end of it. I was like, wait, why are you crying? I thought this was like uh, a funny show. But I mean, how does it feel to be, how, how does it feel when you are starting something like that? And then it like, you're starting to realize, oh, this is like big. You know, I knew from the beginning it was going to be a special project, mainly because Dan Fogelman, the creator, really wanted a casting process. And a lot of times when you're working in television, um, everyone knows there's going to be a casting process, but how that goes down is different. Mm. Um, he was saying, I'm not going to make offers. I want to read actors. I want to chemistry read actors. Mm -hmm. That is going to be the heart and soul of the show. And I get super excited about that because Frankly, I very much believe in the casting process, the audition process, as a um, powerful one, obviously. And so it really made it really clear, like, this is what we're doing. And it was exciting on that show to see what kind of actors and who engaged in the process, because we have many actors on our show that normally would not engage in a television casting process because they're quite well established in television and you usually receive offers. Um, mm -hmm. But this time people read that script and they connected to it. So that's your first sign, right? Your first sign is, is the talent that is attracted. Mm -hmm. um, and then just the magic that was happening in the audition room. Those scenes are so fantastic. The writing is so fantastic. And, um, you know, I, you know, Chris, I read with the actors when I'm auditioning yeah. uh, with them. And so I can feel that, you know, because viscerally. Yeah. So that was really cool. But that's yeah. the first sign. And then, of course, our first official sign was the trailer. 
it somehow it got right. more views than The Force Awakens or something like that. <laughs> an extraordinary number of shares and views that everyone was like, what? <laughs> Uh, and I should point out, you have some um, background working with actors because you were a directing major at uh, School of the Arts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's That's not like you're... BFA is in directing for drama, yeah. Yeah, so you're used to that um, interaction of um, telling a story. Um, you're not just a person with, like, a book of headshots and, like, these are, you know, <laughs> this one knows how to juggle or whatever. <laughs> um, it's been interesting... Like, I often wonder with casting directors how you feel about, like, I feel like a lot of the, like, um, game-changing shows we've had over the last 20 years, a lot of them have casts that when you, when you start at the beginning, they aren't chock full of stars. Um, and it means that there has been some casting work done. Like, oh, yeah, no, it's, it used to be said, um, that TV makes stars. Mm-hmm. Right, that TV is the the venue where you can make stars. Where for film and for Broadway, you need stars to attract the audience. Right, mm-hmm. like the audience has to go out of their home to view theater or or film, but it, the television comes into the home. Right, so, um, but you know, I think it's still. You know, a lot of people are stars because they were really good on something. You know, like I always say, yeah. fame can be a slightly embarrassing byproduct of good work. Well, I was just thinking about how um, Succession just ended, which was this landmark television show. Mm-hmm. And really, when Succession started, maybe Brian Cox was like the name of that show. But it wasn't like a show that was, uh, oh, my gosh, look at all these, this this roster of like, a-list names. And now, of course, to your point, that show has made them all those household yeah. names. Um, yeah. And I feel like that way about like Mad Men and we just started watching Sopranos again. And mm-hmm. really, I was, th- I don't even Breaking understand. Bad. Breaking Bad. I mean, Breaking Bad was like this guy from Malcolm in the Middle is like, yeah. what is he doing in this show? I mean, that had to take some belief from the casting department. Yeah, I think that and the and the process as well. You know, I don't know if Brian Cranston read or met, but I would imagine, unless there was a previous relationship that he might have, um, at least met to discuss. And I think when you're in the room with Brian, you could tell, oh, wow, this, this person is an incredible artist. Um, right. Who just happened to be on Malcolm in the Middle, but Jane Kaczmarek was on Malcolm in the Middle too. That was a that was a really good cast uh, yeah. of of really uh, wonderful three dimensional actors on that show. Um, when you say that um, this is us, they wanted that casting process. What does it look like when they either don't have the interest or resources for that process? Um. Well, you make lists of people that you would think, I think, um, would be interesting for the part, and some of those people will be um, famous, Mm -hmm. and so you will make offers. Right. And so then you don't get that chemistry uh, exploration. You're really, it's not an exploration for sure. It would be a, but sometimes you make an offer to like the lead, but then they come in as part of the team sort of and chemistry read with another actor auditioning. Gotcha. Even though they didn't audition, they still, you still can sometimes explore chemistry in that way. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So this is what I want to ask in terms of the actor's perspective. Do you think casting directors in general are aware of like the immense power actors feel like they have over us? (laughs) 
We don't feel it because we in the industry, I would say, are not viewed as powerful players, mm-hmm. right? Like we are not, um, you know, if our show is a big hit, we do not become rich right. and famous from from that. So I don't think we feel it. I think that can feel confusing to casting directors, actually, because it doesn't feel powerful mm-hmm. when your work is dependent on someone else's work. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, yes, I let you in the door, but your work and and is what makes, you know, like makes it work. We yeah. need the actors. So to me, I don't understand how actors can lose sight of that fact, which sometimes I think of auditioning as a two way street. You're also seeing this is how I think it would be good. Do you agree? Mm-hmm. Because when I was in acting school. I'd get cast in a play and I'd be so excited because I auditioned and I wore what I wanted to wear and I th- did what I thought would be good. And then once I was in the show, they put me in an outfit that didn't make any sense and I didn't <laughs> think their direction was good. And so I would be very frustrated. And I wish it had been a little bit more like, aren't we on the same page now? We auditioned. This is what I thought would be good. Right. Yeah. It's Why are you making me do something different? <laughs> I feel, yeah, I bet I, I would, I would think that actually probably the vast majority of actors do not perceive that sort of two way street of it. I agree. Um, they don't. They think, yeah. they think it's like a pop quiz. Am I doing it right? And that's why when I um, teach and I, I know there's controversy about teaching, but teaching is very important to my um, artistic life. I mm-hmm. will always teach. I'll find a way to teach. <laughs> I think I'm good at it. And that's the number one thing that I try to teach is you're an artist as an actor. I'm. It's a collabor- collaboration that I'm looking for. It's not a um, – I'm not interested in – telling you how the scene works. I'm interested in seeing what you have prepared as an artist mm-hmm. in your own right. It's very hard to avoid that. Um, hey, I'm a student and I'm just going to get a, if I get as, if I get enough B pluses at all my auditions, then I'm a good student and I, sh- I deserve to be given a role at some point. Whereas I feel like the people that get casts are the people that like are trying for A pluses in their own way. And I think the student mentality is very dangerous in general. Yeah. Because students are seeking validation. And <laughs> yeah. validation is not something that happens in a casting room. Yeah. You should We're, put that on the door coming in. <laughs> I wish more actors um, trained and prepared themselves so that when they prepare their audition, they're learning to please themselves because mm-hmm. they have developed their taste, they've developed their craft, and they are they're open to collaboration the same way I am, right? Like I have a sense of what I'm looking for, but sometimes someone comes in and they do something and I think, oh, not quite that, but that has inspired me let's do this again and let's try to reach something that neither of us could have gotten to alone. Yeah. And you must, yeah, you must feel sometimes too, that an actor comes in and it's like, okay, this isn't exactly what you look for, but I really believe in this idea. Can I try Mm -hmm. this thing? (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean that student mentality. It's it's interesting because I do think like, uh, I, I think it's difficult for an actor to maintain that sense of, what you, you come into the industry, you come out of school or maybe you don't, but you have the sense of like, here's what I think is good acting. And here's what I, how I think I can be a, a bring a, my sense of what good acting is to the art. But then 
there's so much of it that's out of your control that I think it's only natural to start thinking like, okay, these people know they're actually the arbiters of what's good because they're the ones providing the job. Not that you personally are providing the job, but this is the channel through which I get the job. And so it almost feels like, um, well, I have an idea of what I think is good, but maybe I shouldn't go with that because like, it's not working or whatever. Um, I think, yeah, I, I totally, totally get that. I mean, we are in the arts, you know, one plus two equals blue. Yeah. It's not, it's subjective. It's subjective. So there isn't a route or a formula for success. So I get, I understand, I have a lot of empathy for the actor, which is why I want to create a warm space when we do come into the room. Mm-hmm. I want to connect with you and, um, because I want you to feel comfortable to do your best work. Yeah. And I, I have felt that, and maybe this is my perception of like what somebody can bring to the casting process is like, um, there are so many things that I can't control in terms of why I would or wouldn't get cast in something mm-hmm. that, um, as I almost think like, maybe I should just think about, let me do my best and just represent, the casting director well in terms of like they took a chance to bring me in i want to just present that like hey i was a good option and not be like some joker that's like not prepared or you know th- I mean, there's not a- being prepared is is one of the here's the thing there is so much you nailed it when you said there's so much out of your control there always is right like there is someone's vision you know it's very hard to be able to get into the head of someone's vision when you don't aren't having a conversation with them or anything like that. Um, but you, the one thing that is in your control is your preparation. That is the one thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I am consistently shocked how much actors leave on the table in terms of like not really looking up the writer of what they're working, going in for, not reading any deadline, like getting some um, context as best they can. Obviously mm-hmm. we can't give the scripts anymore the way we used to be able to, which is very frustrating. Um, but there's other information and it can help you lead to tone. Again, it's not going to make your choices for you, but it's going to give you the information to make stronger choices and I think actors just don't think about that in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, they think about it more like, what's going to happen if I get this job? They think a lot about the results. You know, if I get this, what's going to happen? If right. um, Why did my agent send this to me? Lots of things that we have, right? Thoughts about, you know, when we read it, we read the script with, a, with an agenda. Mm-hmm. We read the script with an agenda. What kind of parts do I see myself playing? And is this a part like that? When really, the first two times, you've got to just read it for story. Because that mm-hmm. writer doesn't know you. Yeah, they, they weren't. You don't come really into the picture at all yet for story. Yeah. I, I find tone to be so hard to um, mm-hmm. figure out sometimes. There's a lot of times where I will especially if it's obviously if a show that doesn't exist yet um, mm-hmm. where you do the audition and then you see the pilot and it's like, Oh, they wanted like a Coen brothers, like, um, you know, type speed. I mean, sometimes you do get instructions along those lines. Um, but yeah, I think that's a, a fascinating 
Thing. Oh, it, it brings to mind something that I've thought about, which is in terms of like, uh, I know you're saying this is not what actors should think about, but it just brought this up for me, which is, um, I've been thinking lately about how do I, uh, negotiate this idea of, I get, I get sent out for a lot of gay roles, um, um, because my agent knows I'm gay and like, there's a lot of gay roles right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but something I'm confronting lately is, I would say the vast majority of them, especially if they're at the guest star level, um, are roles that are like, uh, like I read for one that was like a middle-aged Asian, uh, stocky gay man. Like it was literally a description of me. Uh, this is for like a, uh, off Broadway play, um, where it was literally a description of me and almost like 80% of the, the way. But I knew that there was this like, um, tone that they wanted from this character that was like he comes in he's bitchy he insults people like he there's a there's a energy that the writer wanted that is a tool in their storytelling where the the gay character is like not the main character but the gay mm-hmm. character has this utility of like oh he can say one-liners and that stuff and i mean i think i am a funny person but i'm not funny in that way that like snarky or something i am snarky but you but you know what i mean there is a way a spe- specifically honestly if it's like a straight writer writing a gay character that i know like, what you're talking about um <laughs> that's not i can think of 10 actors that are better at that than i am at that at that idea you know um, and so that is something that I do think about sometimes where I go in and I read the script and I'm just like, I feel like I know what they want. And I, I know I'm not going to be the best one in the room for this. <laughs> I think that's okay. And I think it's okay to come in and do your version through the filter of your taste yeah. and lens. And sometimes, sometimes it kind of sets you go like, oh, I thought I wanted one thing, but this is really more interesting because I've never seen this before. Or yeah. maybe it's this, you know. So I think that that's still okay um, to do. I, I mean, I really think it's it's probably better than doing something that you don't believe in or you feel like you're not strong at. So you're not walking in with confidence. Yeah, I feel like it puts me on this... Um like long-term road that's sort of hard, which is like what I've always thought of as like the Whoopi Goldberg road, which is like, no one was writing any parts that were like Whoopi Goldberg, like, you know, before they knew who she was, you know? And Mm -hmm. so there must've been times where she felt like she isn't fitting into any breakdowns because like nobody is aware of this kind of energy that she brings. And then she's carving out this like very singular path that then people are like building movies around and all that stuff. But it was well, that happens a lot, don't you think, with comedians? It does. I just Because they have um, a specific voice, right? So you you're getting to know them. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, and also you can act. Where I think I always think comedy is so difficult. I feel the likelihood of someone who is strong in comedy will be that they you can you can find their way into a drama. Yeah. Like I had, I, I guess I have to have this belief that like I can break through in that way, but it is daunting because, you know, I'm sure, you know, people that you graduated with from our school when, when the actors graduate, there are some actors that are like, Oh, they're sort of 85% great for like a lot of roles and they're going to get, um, mm-hmm. I actually remember Alexa Fogel told me that when we we're at school, <laughs> she was like, uh, you're not going to be right for much. Um, but she, she said, when you are right, you're going to be more right than other yeah. people are going to be. 
but that's a daunting path. <laughs> I think it's, I think what's weird nowadays, what's kind of changed is there's so much more content. Like, mm-hmm. let's just straight up, there's more content. And there's so many more content brands, right? Like there's channels, there's channels that I don't even know. How do you see it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> How do you watch this channel? I've heard of Crackle. Where do you watch it? <laughs> right. I don't know. Um, but, you know, there's so many more, but all of those um, those little comp- streaming channels, let's just call them channels because I'm old and that's what I used to call them. <laughs> right. Um, channels have a brand, right? A different brand. Yeah. So there's so much more diversity, not only in, um, I think, the social justice movement of saying, hey, we want to represent the world as it really is. And so we need to start being more inclusive. And, you know, this is feeling old fashioned to not and let's do this. There's so much more everything. Yeah. But I so but what's weird is I think a lot of people feel what you're feeling like even actors who may have graduated with you where there was 85% of the parts they were right for, they're feeling because of changes or whatnot, there may not be a part for them, which is really not true for anyone any anymore because there's so much more content and people are so much more interested in creating content mm-hmm. and having actors who also create and um you know, that's, yeah. there's more. There's just more. I yeah. think the more of it, though, makes all of us feel slightly invisible. Oh, that's a really interesting idea. Yeah. I mean, also, it, it feels like there's more, but it pays less. <laughs> that's definitely the case. Yeah. Which is often the way, right? Yeah. I mean, I remember I, I was just getting into commercials, like, at the tail end of hey, you can get a McDonald's commercial and it'll pay $100,000, you know, or whatever. Mm -hmm. It was just ending where people were like, that doesn't happen anymore. (laughs) And even from the time that I was getting into commercials till now, now it's like if you get a national commercial, sometimes you clear like 10 grand or something. It's like, that's great. But it's like there there, there isn't that like gravy train coming behind it that it used to be. uh, But I mean... It, it seems like every six months to a year, the industry is changing to something new. Mm-hmm. Um, so wait, I think I you mentioned this a little bit, but um, I just want to sort of encapsulate this. Like, what are some ways that actors can make your job easy? I think doing the research so that when we're having a conversation about the piece that they have sort of a um, – they know what they're auditioning for. Mm-hmm. I think communicating, honestly communicating, and it's really tricky. I mean, the audition process is a scary one for everyone. Uh, Yeah. I mean, how has the process, obviously we've moved to a lot of um, self-taping at home and stuff. I mean- Well, that was a necessity, right, of the pandemic. So coming out of the pandemic. And then, of course, what happened in the pandemic was a massive work stoppage. So most people gave up their leases or tried to get out of their lease so that they didn't, you know- go to debtor's prison. Right. Um, So they might be in Cincinnati sending you a tape or something. Correct. Who knows where they are. And they're, uh, so there's, people are still recovering from that. And then I think, I mean, like for myself, I don't have a space currently to hold auditions. Mm -hmm. When I first moved to LA, I 
would get a space typically assigned to me by the production that hired me, right? Mm-hmm. Like you probably came to audition for at the Fox lot. Yeah, it was definitely on the lot. Right, exactly. We're, we're, and then, and so I recently have been trying to negotiate for that and actually have succeeded, but unfortunately it is on the lot, which means that as a union member, I cannot cross a picket line to okay. use it. So we are still using self-tapes because that it, we don't have space. But I am feeling it's soon to be, hopefully soon, that we will be able to get into space. Yeah, I was going to say, do you, are you a person that wants to get back in the room with people? Um, yes. I don't think any of us get a BFA to sit in front of the computer for 12 hours. Right. Okay. Because I I think, yeah, like, it does feel, first of all, from the actor's perspective, self-tapes are great in one sense because it's like, hey, I don't have to travel. Mm -hmm. But um, I actually find them kind of um, difficult because there's no one there to tell you to stop sometimes. (laughs) Um, You know, when you go into the room, you get two maybe three, like it's not, you're not there for 45 minutes doing it. You kind of have to let it live whatever state you're in. And if you made a little fumble or whatever, it's fine. It's like, no one is like expecting you to give the, but there's almost like when you self tape, maybe this is pressure we're putting on ourselves, but it almost does feel like, Oh, this kind of needs to be finished in a way. Um, Well, I will tell you that um, in the recent conversation, I've been shocked how many people are paying for self tapes. uh Uh-huh. That I makes me so sad. I really, I really did think that people were getting their twelve dollar ring light on Amazon like I did in the pandemic, and then <laughs> right. zooming, and then taping. You know, setting up. I had one that you could put the iPhone yeah. right in the center of the ring, and that um, it was not that difficult. Like I, I'm kind of in shock how much when, when they were breaking down what people were spending. I also, Chris, I didn't realize how many people paid coaches to audition. Oh, that's been, yeah, I've done that a couple of times. I mean, I have been encouraged by people to be like, you know, oh, speaking of the self tape, like, so I, I've paid for two self tapes, but this was before the lockdown. Uh, when one of them was for like La Jolla or something where it was, mm-hmm. it was, I paid for two self tapes when it was like, it's not in LA. The only way to submit is through self tape. And right. I didn't have like a good setup to do it. Um, well, but, sometimes it's easier. And so when you're thinking of like time cost estimate, I, yeah. I get it. Like sometimes it's better to spend a little bit of money for yeah. something than within the amount of time it will take. But yeah. the funny thing is when I look back at like a lot of the things that I've been cast through self-tapes, like I got cast for a broad city when I did it with my iPhone. Someone was holding it. We were at Edinburgh Fringe in a terrible flat with terrible sound and terrible lighting. And like, it was just... Chris, when I tell you that I cast one of my favorite guest stars off of a self-tape that was not in focus, <laughs> and I, but you could see what she was doing and yeah. it was so genius that I sent it to my producers and I said, I don't even want to mess around to ask her, you need to see this, beware, it's a really poor self-tape quality, <laughs> right. but I think you'll see what I'm seeing. Yeah. And my text back was, offer. Yeah. Oh, that's great. You know, and I don't know that people realize, like everyone asks me for the last three years, what makes a good self-tape? And I'm like, good acting. And I know that's not what they want to hear, but that's the answer. Well, I think it's this expression of we're trying to control whatever little things we can't control. So, um, and like, so I have been told specifically by my previous manager when I was auditioning for a pilot, like go coach with somebody, hire this person to coach. It was like $90. Mm. Um, 
And so I, I've done, I've gotten coached maybe like two or three times. And, um, it was like useful to have someone to bounce the ideas off of, I guess. But, oh, but, for sure. For yeah. sure. But I, I don't, um, I didn't, I, I really am surprised by that. I, I would have thought that it, um, was I think I think of things like from a theater perspective where you have your group of friends who are actors right and if someone has a big audition they're calling you know and like you and everyone's getting together and, right. and doing it you know not that this is um I think I'm just was naive to realize how much that cost I think um I also think I come from most of my career has been in New York City yes and I feel like it's uh, maybe a little bit different there. I think that there is definitely more of a tolerance here for quasi predatory behavior around, um, you know, I know that there are some very good coaches, but there's also a sense of like, well, if you don't coach, then you're not putting yourself in the best position to like win this audition or whatever. And that's where you get into this weird space of like, um, you know, I'm, should I pay, you know, a thousand dollars to take this class on how to pitch agents to sign me, or should I, you know, there's a whole world here that's very, and it's like what the, the, the hard part is that there is some genuine knowledge that you might want to know in these worlds, but then it's sometimes hard to, to delineate where are you sort of just exploiting people's hope and want and the need that they don't quite understand how it all works because like it is subjective and having been on the casting side of things, sometimes when I'm producing something, sometimes you're like casting somebody, I mean, you're genuinely casting them for, or not casting them for things that have nothing to do with them sometimes. (laughs) Um, Well, there's a million reasons. That's why there's no way to anticipate um, what it is. I think, yeah, I, I just, I'm just expressing my naivete that that's what um, people are doing. And I think that, I think with all kinds of things, classes, coaches, because I know an excellent coach. I would be lying if I didn't say there's a coach that I reach out to when I find someone who has something really special but is very green yeah. and I don't have enough time to be doing work sessions with them myself because I have to con- you know, continue to cast the rest of the thing. I have someone, but it's usually the person. I still can see the potential in them from their initial audition. Mm-hmm. Right. And then I know where I need them to get. Usually this is a situation where this is like a major role and this person's very green or something like that. Yeah. But um, yeah, I guess uh, I just didn't realize that. But I think for all professions, there is postgraduate professional um, like whether it's networking, whether it's uh, professional like enhancement kinds of classes where people want to. Um, push to the next level of wherever they are, like the way doctors will do those classes to try to work on their bedside manner or, you know, lawyers do this kind of thing. A police officer, you know, there's a lot of, every industry has this kind of thing, but I think it's super important for the actors to do research, to make sure that they are not just signing up for the first thing they see that they really talk around, uh, you know, ask to audit the class. Like, I mean, you know, I think that there's, there's a little bit of responsibility on us as well. I know that when I'm teaching for someone, I want to, I get very frustrated if I feel like I'm teaching 
people who like really are don't have any sense of what industry they're entering. Yeah. I mean, this is a, right? this, this is I get a, like, I, I get mad at whoever called me. Cause of course, when they call me, they act like it's something very different. Right. 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 That everyone's very professional, that this is, they're going to be showing, you know. Yeah. I mean, and I feel like there's a difference between them being green and them being like just out to lunch in terms of like what, what. Well, it's a tricky, Chris, because we do have an art form that when you're very good at it, it looks easy. Yeah. Nobody goes to the symphony and says, tomorrow I'm booking an audition tour through Europe because I'm going to play the cello now. Right. Or they, they don't ask you like, where'd you sign up to be first violin in that? <laughs> Yeah. Like when people ask me, just like, so when does NBC have their uh, open auditions? And I'm like, uh, yeah. Um, but, but when you watch television and film, because we the the art form is such that um, when it's good, it fe- looks effortless. It looks just like a person behaving. Yeah. Um, I think that we just there's you know it's challenging you know, and because there is so much more content, I feel like everybody sees a path where. I don't know what age you are, but I feel like we're somewhere around the same age. I feel like for when when I was choosing to go to drama school, my parents basically were like, you're choosing homelessness. Uh Right. It was basically like, you will not succeed at this. Um, As opposed to now, I feel like because of maybe social media, TikTok, things like that, it feels much more accessible. Yeah. um, But it's not necessarily, it's still an art form. Yeah. It feels like you can... Uh, well, it feels much easier than when we were growing up to become famous. Um, that doesn't seem that hard these days. Uh, well, but, you could always become famous. Just do you want to become famous for acting? Yeah, that's yeah. hard. Um, <laughs> but now I say that I, I used to say a really horrible thing when people would ask about fame, and I was like, "There's much easier ways to become famous," but they were like awful. Yeah. Well, the thing is, though, now you can't. You could become famous now if you can act for like three seconds at a time. <laughs> um, it, Nobody's going on TikTok and watching acting monologues. Chris. <laughs> uh, I mean, my Shakespeare sonnet. Funny. <laughs> funny is different than acting. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, I'm, I'm interested in your sense of teaching because um, the casting world did go through this mm-hmm. sort of sea change since like when I came to LA, because I came to LA in 2014. And mm-hmm. I got my manager by paying money to go to a casting thing. Um, to me, I was like, very pragmatic about it. It was, was there you know, casting directors there? Uh, uh, sorry, this was I've done a few back in like, basically, when I moved to LA, I like had nothing better to do. So I was like, I'm going to go to these things that are like, one is like, here's seven managers. You do. Okay. But that's not a casting thing. So let's just. Well, no, no. But I also, but I did go to, um, here's one where you get to read a scene for a casting director. They're going to give you notes and then blah, blah. And one of them was one of the guys that was like arrested for or whatever. Um, uh, One of them was associated with uh, a CBS show. Um, So, um, and it was, those were sort of, so some of them were casting people, some of them were managers, but it was in this world of, it did feel vaguely like kind of pay for play. Uh, And obviously the, like that was legally like, uh, like a lot of, they got in a lot of trouble for this, this Mm. world because there was a lot of conflict of interest and stuff like that. Um, But Ironically, like I took a very pragmatic approach to it, which is like, I'm going to write my own two page scene 
I'm going to write a scene that is completely unbalanced, where the reader has barely anything to say, and I get to just do this character. It's, yeah. I'm literally writing my own audition piece for these managers, and I got my manager through that. Um, but I like, feel mixed about it because I do think, you know, the traditional pipelines to casting, uh, to be seen, to being an actor, are going to, you know, at drama school and going to having a showcase from your school for agents and potentially getting signed by an agent through this. That's the sort of, I'd say, main way that when you're in college or pursuing this, you hear about, right? Mm-hmm. And then what if you don't get into one of those 25 schools? Yeah. Then you don't have access to that. And for me, the feeling I have about it is how do you get the first – how do you start? Right? Like how do you start? Yeah. And one thing I do think about those kinds of classes with – because I'll be honest, Chris, if I were an actor and I moved to a new market and I didn't know anyone, I would do the same thing because I would look at the cost ratio from – I wouldn't look at it like I'm auditioning though. I would look at it like I'm meeting people and also I want to hear what they have to say. I'm curious how my materials and my presentation is received. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, because – you and then so you're getting a – you're sort of reading the temperature of like what the work is like in that town. That's what I would do if I were starting in in a in a place because I would be curious how to. I mean, essentially, how I did I get into casting? I worked for free. Yeah. Right, and I wanted to do work for free, so I got my waiting tables job good enough to where I could say now I can only do doubles on the weekend, but I have to do doubles on the weekend to right. pay my rent. Right. And then I'm going to take this job, and I'm going to learn here. Now I could do that as an adult and as an adult decision that I made to do that because unlike actors who have auditions they could go to like for the theater, how do you get started as a director? Yeah. I mean right? there's no auditions. There no one's just going to hand you a show. Yeah. So I see to me limiting those classes. Yes, I think they should be kept to a standardized rules absolutely and not be predatory. But I could see that if you didn't have anything, what do you have? What's the path? How do you learn those kinds of things? Well, that's what I I've been thinking lately about, you know, there's a discussion lately about nepo babies and um mm-hmm. but this is I I'm very torn about this because I actually sometimes do think like for a director let's say I think a very standard model was sort of like apprenticeships and working for free or very little money. Um, mm-hmm. You're like this assisting some, not, not even that you were the assistant director, that you were just yeah. like the lackey of, you know, um, someone who just directed at Playwrights Horizons and they come to your school and you, you know, help them out and you become buddies with them. And in a lot of ways, like this is sort of like the old way we would hire people in any industry is just like, oh, like, you know, we need a new um, cobbler for the village. You know, like, you want to be a cobbler? Go work for the cobbler. And- Talk about nepotism. People's last name was their yeah. – the last name of Cooper meant you made, like, barrels. Like, this yeah. was this was a – we we definitely, as a culture grew, went with – these were the people. Yeah. And this family does the market and this family does this. And, I mean, I'm, let's be honest. What's a monarchy if not nepo babies? That's <laughs> right. literally the way our – that's the pinnacle of the – the structure. Yeah. So I feel, you know, I feel like it's hard for everybody. I see people who are related to other people. And if they're not 
talented, I don't see them again. I mean, yeah. I know what. Well, the it's part the that same I'm, way if I see someone that I'm am teaching and that person I'm working with and stuff, I don't. There's not a difference. Yeah, the part that I'm torn about is that I actually do like feel like that's probably the best way to hire people because it it works on a whole bunch of like social levels of like, hey, like not just like are they talented, but like are they a good person to be around or you know there, there's a lot of other factors that work into like. Do you want to be on set with people and that kind of stuff? But what I'm torn about is that, um, you know, what you said about if you want to be an actor, if you want to be a director, like, where do you start? Like, what is the first thing? That is a thing that, like, if your dad is a Hollywood actor, that those those first one or two opportunities are even if they don't directly help you get them, even if it's just that you have a parent that is modeling how to approach an industry. Absolutely. It's a leg up. You know yeah. what's also a leg up? Having an incredible singing voice, being extraordinarily beautiful, right? Yeah. Like we all, I always yeah. joke about that. Like if you walk into a room and everyone's thinking, oh, I think she wants to Diet Coke. Like what kind of sense of humor are you developing? <laughs> right, you know, right. because people, you know, our culture reacts to certain things. I don't, I think, I think it's just, not super helpful to think about the reasons it's not happening for you because in t- instead to think about what you can do and w- to make it happen. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, so that's definitely something I've been trying to engage with less. I, I think the, the tension that I have is marrying those ideas with like also the desire to have social justice. And, and mm-hmm. the fact is that like, if we are, if, there are ways in which those, um, I don't even want to call them nepotism, like whatever we call this whole category of basically like it's who you know in a vague mm-hmm. way, that those are also ways to reinforce class or race barriers between. One million percent. You know, and that's the that tough part is for me. Th- very tough. Absolutely. I just think that why are we mad at the person as opposed to the system yeah well i'm only mad to do that right i'm only mad when ben stiller like tweets out that hollywood is a meritocracy which he did (laughs) tweet out and it's kind of like um that that's the only the only actually don't begrudge anybody who has any connection like that it's just i can't believe how sometimes they don't recognize that that that's amazing to me We've all heard the the experiment that they did in like a fifth grade to explain privilege, but where they tell everyone in the classroom, they put, you know, the trash can at the front and everyone gets a piece of paper and balls it up and you throw it. And of course the kids in the front are throwing it and it still feels hard. <laughs> right, right, right. But the kids in the back are like, what the F? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's a perfect example. What I think the reason people are blind to it is they don't, they don't, it doesn't feel easy when they're doing it. Yeah. Um, speaking of scary. Yeah. speaking of getting into it, like let's say I'm a person that's like I don't want to be an actor, I don't want to be a director, I want to work in casting. Like, mm-hmm. how does that happen? Well, now there's so many. It's actually <laughs> there used to be no pipeline, so it was you know uh, every way that you could think of. Um, and now they we, the CSA, the Casting Society of America, has started a. Uh, training program. So you can go to the CSA website and actually um, there's like mentorships, there's like classes and skill set in terms of uh, learning the technology that you would need to get an assistant job. Um, There's an Academy Gold program through the Academy, uh, the Motion Pictures of Arts and Sciences. Um, I've had wonderful experiences with 
um, Academy Gold interns, and they're paid, right? Like, that's a whole uh, system. So I think, and then most of the major networks also have casting programs that are paid, like basically paid internships Mm. so that it's not, you're not expected to work for free. You know, they're competitive just like every industry. I do still think the key to it is not to float our boat, Chris, but like go learn about the art form, go to college for it and do everything you can say yes, do plays, do, do everything, you know, try to, if you have a Saturday off, Go see if you can usher. Go see the theater. Go see movies. Just sort of immerse yourself in the art form. And I really think if you keep your eye on the prize and you keep surrounding yourself with what you love about it, your way, path opportunities will present themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very uh, – I, I like that positivity to it. Uh, okay, I'm going to give you a thought experiment. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, I'm going to send you to Winston-Salem, North Carolina – in September of next year, and you get an entire September to June to, to guide the seniors with your knowledge of like what's the smoothest way for them to like go from being a, a college senior at University of North Carolina School of the Arts to being a, a prospective working professional. What what is what are you doing with that crew? I think first thing I'm going to say to them is showcase is one day of your life. It's a tremendous opportunity, but it is one day of your life. And I'm going to tell them every story, which I luckily from my vantage point have seen of the kids who get tons of calls to the kids who've done really well and did not get tons of calls. And I'm going to say that this is the year to learn to validate yourself. Because the big difference is here, we're seeking validation. Once you move into the industry, you are an active member. You are you you have something to offer, not something to ask for. Mm-hmm. You're going into an audition room to offer your work. So let's do weekly audition classes where I'm throwing, you know, different types of materials and we're talking about the prep, how to research it, what is meaningful what is useful, what isn't useful. And I would be, you know, trying to help each individual see how they are an individual, because I feel like when you're at school, you're kind of all the same Mm -hmm. in a weird way. Yeah. Usually because you're in a similar age group, right? So you're the same. So trying to find what is similar and what is not similar. And what is similar is you're all artists, you all have training, but that's really it. And then the next step is you're not in competition with your classmate. It feels like you're in competition right now because you're the pool of talent of which casting begins, but you're about to join a much bigger pool. And that's when the differences are going to become more clear. Yeah. Also, I would say that, you know, by the end of your senior year, you've been there for four years. There's people that you're in your crew that you are so sick of. (laughs) that you know every move they make they go and do a scene and you're like oh they're doing that thing again or whatever Mm -hmm. and then talking about entering this bigger pool of talent once you graduate college uh you're all going to be dispersed to the winds and then six months from now when you see them in an audition room you're gonna be like oh hey it's a friend of mine in this in this sea of other people Um, I think it's very easy to feel like you're competing for something your senior year and you're really not. You can all succeed. 
And I do try to really encourage people because there's going to be the thirsty members, right? The thirsty members who every audition that they get, every agent meeting that they get, they're sending it to the group text or commenting it on social media or whatnot. And if you did not get a lot of calls or you are not getting auditions even, let alone callbacks, you're going to feel, it's not going to feel good. But I really encourage everyone, heart that, put the positive energy out there, be supportive, because that person's reaching out like that because they're insecure, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That um, behavior is insecurity. And so you, we're all insecure, right? We're all insecure when we left. That's leaving college is literally the time you're the most insecure, <laughs> right. right? So let's try to shore each other up and remember that we do have, have gone through four years together. And what can we do to support? Yeah. Uh, and also I'm going to send this to School of the Arts uh people to listen to and right about now is when they should be arriving in LA. Right. (laughs) Um, So, you know, have them hit hit me up and we'll go to coffee. Um, I want to ask you just before we go um, about greatest showman, because um, right. I think right before greatest showman, I had seen waitress Mm -hmm. uh, on Broadway where I got to see Kiala settle who I'd never seen before, who was Mm -hmm. sort of a force of nature. And then I would say, Greatest Showman was part, like, a big introduction um, of that specific uh, ferocious singing voice and presence and everything to the world. And I, what was it like to be – because obviously people knew who Hugh Jackman was and all that stuff. But specifically when that B-roll came out, there was a B-roll rehearsal footage of um this is me or it's not rehearsal oh that's showcase for those were those were workshops um on the way to getting greenlit okay so what was it like being along during that it was awesome i have to say it was so much fun and we did several of them and um So we would cast, kind of cast the movie and then cast the movie and then cast the movie. And we needed people who could do it live. Um, And so that was just really fun to explore and and work with Benj and Justin, who wrote the music, and Michael, who was directing, and obviously Hugh, who who was producing, and our other producers. I felt like it was a really vibrant time. It was really exciting because it was almost like doing a, um, you know, like a backers audition. Mm Mm-hmm. And then the the people from the studio would come and watch us. And I remember I'd read the stage directions and it was, you know, I'm going to be fast and loud because you never want to drag something down. <laughs> right. stage directions. I've sat in too many to, to not know that. So we just, it, that, that energy was very real. And obviously Kiala is a no brainer for that part. Yeah. But in those vid, in that video that went viral, part of it was also, uh, I felt was watching Hugh watch, that mm-hmm. performance, you know, it was because, you know, obviously we all know who he is. And then to see the look on his face when he's experiencing it was kind of, that was kind of the added to like the electricity of it. I thought. I agree. And it, you felt it in the room. You definitely felt it. Like she is not, she's, I mean, cause her songs too are such an uh, anthem of unity, right? Like yeah. of like we're, and she can deliver that. Um, she's one of my favorites of all time. I'm getting emotional. I'm so proud of her. Well, I mean, I, th- I, I was to say that's must be a nice thing about being a casting director, which is that you can collect these sort of like, um, you know, you, you have definitely been instrumental in people's creative journeys. Um, 
I feel like we're all collaborating together and it's so, it's, it is very meaningful to get to be there at the introduction. Yeah. Um, I mean, do you feel, um, do you have more of that sense of like, oh, I've got this little tickle in my brain of an intuition of like, this is the person. Are you better about listening to that? We joke about it because uh, me and Bernie Telsey often work together. And when we first started to do bigger films, you know, there's always this panic of like, is there anybody? Is anybody good? Especially if it's like kids or like, <laughs> right. you know, the person's got to be like drop dead gorgeous, but has two lines, you know, that kind of a thing. And so you're just like looking for the right vibe. And especially if the part's like really specific. And we had a section of life where like three movies we were working on, I'm off or something. And I feel that. Uh-huh. I feel like I'm like, that's it. And I'll, I'll take a, meanwhile, I'll, I'll in, inevitably at that time, I'll get a text from Bernie. How's it going in your room? Are you seeing anybody, you know, like this? Right. And I'll just to make him comfortable, I'll send like a screenshot or like just a, you know, just like a, we call it a soul capture when we do a screenshot that we feel like kind of is the essence, what we're seeing. Yeah. Um, and he'll be like, oh, good. And <laughs> it's happened three times where that person's gotten the part. Oh, and so I started to trust it after the third one. I was like, okay, when I have that feeling, but that's someone claiming the part that's ideal when that happens. It doesn't always happen. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's really a process and, um, and a process. And that's why a lot of actors will have like multiple, multiple auditions because they are, um, well, actually I can't even say that because sometimes you feel that, but there's still a process to be had. Um, but you know, I, I believe in the process. I'm really excited whenever any creative team says, I, I'm excited about the casting process and dis- exploring. Mm-hmm. As opposed that's to, the case, that's like music to my ears. As opposed to like, we want to just get through this and get the thing cast and move on to like the part we think is fun or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Tiffany, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh my this gosh, of course. So informational and interesting. Um, I feel like I could complain about my acting career to you for, for hours. <laughs> um, but, uh, and you're mostly West Coast now. So, like, mm-hmm. actors are probably going to run into you at some point. And so, as just as we get that space, right? You know what? Know your material, do some research. Don't um, be scared of the casting director, I would say. Like, they're collaborating yeah. with you. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm like, one of the takeaways I have from you is like, don't come into the room being like, you know, you have all the answers. What can I do to perform so that you are satisfied? You know, like that doesn't seem a collaboration. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm excited to see what you're bringing to the table. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know what? I'm going to put in a word with the University of North Carolina School of the Arts for Tiffany to teach an entire year to the seniors. This, I laid out the whole curriculum. It sounds good. <laughs> so we'll see you in Winston-Salem in September of 2020. You'll be there right there, Chris. I'll you're do it. To- <laughs> right, we should do it on Zoom once a week. We'll do it on Zoom. But, um, Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll see you later. Okay. Bye. That was Tiffany Little Canfield. I personally got so much out of that conversation. I hope you did as well. Um, also, I want to give a shout out to the birds outside the window of my house who are so loud that I and I didn't realize till I was editing the episode uh, for final production just how loud they were. And uh, I don't actually have the ability to edit them out. Um, 
at this time. I'm, I apologize if you hate the sounds of bird song. Um, hey, if you have thoughts about the show, please send them to chrisgraceshow at gmail.com. Uh, again, if you want to support my Edinburgh Fringe show, please go to chrisgrace.com slash scarlet, S-C-A-R-L-E-T-T. Two dates left in the Hollywood Fringe. That's the 23rd and the 24th. You can go to the hollywoodfringe.org site to look at tickets for that. Tell you what, if you want, you can use code PALS, P-A-L-S, for a $5 ticket. You can use code FRISBEE, like the thing you would throw in a park, for a comp. If you uh, want a comp instead, totally fine. I don't care. I want people to come see it. That's all that really matters to um, and uh, you know I think I want to talk a little bit more about my process in putting the show together because it's been really instructive for me and I'm really actually quite proud of my approach to this show uh, it's as if you approach an artistic project with a, m- a method that you're proud of that it's almost separate from the external results that you would get from the show. I'm actually feeling that a little bit this time around. It's been really interesting to experience. Uh, so thank you so much for listening to this episode. Uh, I'm getting these episodes out as I can, given the things that I'm doing right now, which again is working a full-time software development job for uh, producing and creating this Edinburgh friend show and doing stand-up comedy as well. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I here's my uh, promise to you okay Um, I want to have interesting conversations with people and I want to share them with you I am going to do my best to put them out in a timely manner but I want to allow myself this is going to be this podcast is you know um, it's it's a way for me to have a reason to connect with people and to like talk about them about their work and their perspectives and i'm gonna let myself off the hook for not getting it out every week if you let me off that hook as well i would appreciate that uh but you don't have to i've always thought it's funny that um, with podcast subscriptions you know the next episode will just show up when it's ready um but i guess what i'm saying is that there's a part of me that's kind of like wow if you're not going to put it out every week then you should just quit you should you know cancel this podcast the way you have canceled other podcasts in the past and actually i kind of feel like uh i don't have to i'm gonna put out uh i'm gonna do a hardcore history type schedule (laughs) but anyway um thank you so much for listening and you'll be hearing from me very soon you've been listening to the chris grace show edited by eric michaud and produced by chris grace the opening music is easy cooking by boom opera and this closing music is chinese hip-hop by alexander rufire you can email us at chris grace show at gmail.com and we'll see you next time thank you for listening